Well, good evening. How are we doing tonight? My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here. I get the privilege of working with our college-age students, and so I get to be with you tonight. Okay, first things first, cell phones. Let's get those out and shut them off, all right, because that was kind of fun last night, or last Saturday. <laughs> but let's just, uh, that was going to be my first blank, but I thought, now we'll just get it, get it out of the way right now. Um, but if, if you're here for the first time tonight, welcome. We're glad that you're with us. Um, we are in the middle of a series in the Gospel of John. This is uh, one of Jesus' first followers, one of his closest friends' account of Jesus, who he was, why he came. And um, if you've been a part of this, you know that this has, been a, this has been a great ride so far. I mean, we're only three chapters in, and in about few, two years we'll probably be done. But this is a fun thing that we're doing. Uh, and, and, and if you've been paying attention in this series so far, this idea that, that Jesus has been revealed to us, and he's come to give us so much. And, and John has been trying to make a case to help us understand who Jesus is and why Jesus came. And as we continue this tonight, I, I want you to grasp this idea as we jump into this. As we see what everything that's been written so far, we, we realize something incredible. That, that everything that God has done is for us. But we need to remember this. That though it's for us, it has never been, nor will it ever be, about us. And that's a huge distinction, and it's important that we get this, because if we don't get this right, we're going to run into all sorts of trouble. But the more that we can understand this idea that what God has done, what God is doing is for us, but it's not about us, it enables us to really experience what he has for us. It enables us to experience the purpose for why we're here and what he's calling us to live. And so tonight, as we jump into John chapter 3, if you could do me a couple of favors, get your Bibles out, open them up to the New Testament book of John, and you should have gotten some message notes, hopefully, in the program on your way in. Um, but what we're going to see tonight, this idea of getting this right, understanding that it's for us but not about us, has a lot to do with understanding our context. Hey, why am I here and what's my role? And tonight, as we look at John, Jesus' older cousin, we, we, we affectionately call him John the Baptist, because he came and was baptizing people and calling them to repentance. As we look at John, we're going to see an incredible example of somebody who understood their context. And we'll get to learn some things about what, what happens when we get this too. So in John, we're going to jump in. John chapter 3, verse 22. And up until this point, Jesus hasn't really gone public with his ministry yet. Uh, he was kind of just, just coming onto the scene. You remember a couple weeks ago we saw him at the wedding in Cana and mom wanted him to like step up and he's like, not, not yet mom. And yet he still helped mom out and had this awesome party at the wedding. Um, he has this, this midnight conversation with one of the religious leaders in the day and they just have this profound theological discussion. And, and John just basically says, the point of Jesus is God loves you and he wants, he wants to do incredible things in your life. And so now we see in verse 22 that Jesus has started to go public with his ministry. So verse 22, we read this. It says, after this, after everything we've seen so far, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John, this is Jesus' older cousin, John who was baptizing before Jesus started, um, was, was, uh, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and because they were there were people constantly coming to be baptized. Those are kind of two key ingredients to baptism, water and people. And so there were a lot of them. And so what you kind of have going on here in this time is here's John. When John the Baptist came onto the scene, he was calling the nation of Israel to repentance. 
And it was through this physical act of being dunked in water, and it was this kind of this cleansing statement, like, repent, come back to God's kingdom. And then Jesus shows up, and John's like, hey, there's the Lamb of God. He's the one who's come to take away the sins of the world. That's who it's all about. And now Jesus goes public, and he's turning people to, after the Father's heart as well. So you kind of have this electric kind of scene going on where you have this one kind of crazy prophet, John the Baptist, wearing his weird clothes and, and saying all this crazy stuff. And the religious leaders are all tweaked by him, calling people to Jesus. So people are still going to John to be baptized. And, and then Jesus shows up, and then he starts baptizing people. And then you have the religious leaders that are all confused because they don't like John. And then who's this Jesus guy? And everyone's just kind of running around like, let's jump in the water. It's like this, this, just this crazy, fun, exciting, thrilling, confusing time. And uh, John wants us to understand in verse 24, this was before John the writer wants us to understand that this was before John the Baptist was put in prison, just in case we weren't clear, because it's kind of hard to baptize at the river if you're in prison, but John just wants to clear some things up. And now, now we're going to see an argument coming up between the followers of John the Baptist and uh, a certain Jew. Now, now, real quick, let me just point something out. In, in John's gospel, as we translate it into English, a lot of times you'll see the word Jew or Jews with a capital J. What that usually is referring to is the Jewish religious leaders or a Jewish religious leader. There's been some confusion in our culture that some kind of like an anti-Semitic sense has come out of the gospel of John, like he's, he's, he's down on the Jewish people which would be really ridiculous because of two reasons. Number one, Jesus is Jewish. Number two, John, who wrote the gospel, is Jewish. So there's no sense of that. So just so you understand, whenever you see that word Jew or Jews capitalized, it's a reference to the religious establishment in the day. So we're going to see a discussion and an argument unfold here. Verse 25. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. Now this is, we don't know what they were saying, but, but the gist of this argument is along the lines like the religious leaders had this elaborate system of cleansing themselves and making themselves look good or be right in God's eyes. Uh, remember at the wedding in Cana a few weeks ago when we saw that, the, the jars that Jesus used to turn the water into wine were the jars that would have been used for the ceremonial washing. And, and, and so part of the debate and the discussion probably would have been along the lines of why do we have to be baptized if we're already cleaning ourselves? And it would be the sense like if I make myself right in God's eyes, why do I have to repent and be baptized? This would be part of this discussion and this debate. Now, have you ever had a friend who had a discussion with someone and you know the discussion didn't go well because when they come back to you, they're in a foul mood? Yeah, so for John's disciples, this argument doesn't go well for them. Because we're going to see this as they come back to John, they're kind of all huffing and puffing and upset and complaining. And so they have this huge argument over ceremonial washing. In verse 26, they, come, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, in other words, Jesus, well, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. Now, you, 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 we don't know what the argument was, but maybe somewhere in that argument, the, this religious guy was saying, well, if your baptism is so important, why are all the people going to Jesus now? And you can imagine these guys are like, like, I don't know how, like, oh, and so they go huffing and puffing back to John. They're like, this Jesus guy is taking all our business. Now, talk about missing the point, right? 
Like, if anything, you'd be like, oh, that's the one that John said is the Lamb of God who's come to take the sin of the world. But you got to understand, like, they don't, they don't fully get it yet. All they know is that they were with the cool, popular guy, the one everyone was talking about, and suddenly this Jesus guy shows up and ruins it for them. And so they're all bent out of shape. And what's great about what we're going to see here with John is here's a guy who understands that idea that what God is doing, what Jesus is about is for him, but it's not about him. It's not about John. Because if it was about John, he probably would have been like, that's right. Like, we got to have a bigger baptism. Like, we're going to get a water slide and make this more fun. Like, we're going to bring them back to us or something. Like, like some churches can be petty like that with local churches. Like, ooh, they got a gym. We're going to have a bigger gym. You know, like, like we play those games because we miss the point in our culture today. But what's beautiful about John is he doesn't get into any of that. Verse 27. To this, John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. Now, you know someone in, is in that category of wise, sage-like when they start with cryptic sayings, right? Like, you're just like, oh, he's, he's saying something that seems deep and profound. We'll, we'll, we'll get some insight into this a little bit later, but he says, look, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I'm not the Christ. That, that, that's the, the Greek translation, this idea of the Messiah. I, I'm not the promised one, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. Now they must be really confused. Is there, there's a wedding going on? Like, we're here upset that everyone's going over Jesus, and now you're talking about heaven giving God what, and now there's a wedding? <laughs> and he's making a point, right? This is the friend who attends the bridegroom, waits and listens for him, and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. I.e., it's not about me. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He, Jesus, must become greater. I must become less. Now, you want to talk about a guy who understood context, who understood this idea that it's not about him. It's John. And what's great about seeing this is he gives us an example of this. He gives us a model of this. But here's the tragedy. I think here, here's the thing I think that a lot of us fail to understand. It's not about us. And a lot of times when we begin to live in that arena, that idea that, hey, this life is still about me in some way, it, it, it causes us to begin to live out of context, and we begin to miss out on what God has for us. Because if you think it's about you, you're suddenly no longer going to experience what God has for you because God's like, it's not about you, it's about me. And the scary thing is that it's really easy for us to slip into that kind of thinking. And as we begin to live that way, as we begin to live out of context, we can very easily begin to miss out on what God has for us and live a sort of dislocated existence, never fully experiencing what it is he wants to give us. And, and, and so what I want to do for a little bit is just step back and, and look at what happens if that's where we begin to live. Look at what happens if we begin to live life out of context and where that leads us in the journey to maybe help some of us assess our life today and say, hey, maybe I got to do some business with God tonight. And so here we go. This will be the first thing to be writing down in your note sheet is that if we miss this, if we don't understand this, if we begin to live life out of context, it leads to a place called arrogance. Have you ever known someone who thought that they were the center of the universe? 
<laughs> like, you, you laugh, you smirk, no pointing right now. I mean, you can elbow them if you want, but do you know someone like that? Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's one of the things that's kind of obvious to see in somebody else. And, and the interesting thing is, in our culture today, this is a big deal for us. I mean, I, I don't know if you've paid attention to what it means to be in a Western culture, but we tend to be fairly narcissistic, fairly ego-driven, fairly self-centered. And if you don't believe me, just turn on the news. Just turn on TV. Just look at pop culture. I mean, that's what our culture chases after. And it's so easy to see that in another person. It's so easy to see that. Like, like if you, in your workplace or in your family, you know who the arrogant person is, right? Because they're the one that just, they make it about them. And it's so easy to see in someone else. And yet, if we're going to be honest tonight, if, we're, if we were really to look at ourselves, it can be in us too. Like, like as I examine my own life, I can have a very subtle arrogance, a humble arrogance almost. But it's still arrogance. And I think part of the reason why we can struggle with this so much is because of the culture we live in. We live in such a rights-driven culture that my life becomes about asserting those rights. And how dare you take whatever away from me? And, and if you've ever doubted that that was the case, then let's just drive together on the freeway sometime. Because if I ever doubt that I'm wrestling with arrogance, all it takes is for that guy, and you know who that guy is, right? It just takes for that guy to come in and cut you off, to cut me off, and suddenly my humble arrogance surfaces. Because I say, or if my girls are in the car, I think, who does he think he is? Am I the only one? Am I, right? Okay. A few of you. Okay, so maybe there's more than just me. Good, this isn't my own therapy session right now. But in that moment, when that surfaces, and I say, who does he think he is? Really, I could just paraphrase, because if he knew who I was, he wouldn't do that to me. Right? Like, how dare he? And it becomes all about me in that moment. Here's a great way to test the level of arrogance in your life. When you're wronged, how do you react? Especially if you don't know why they wronged you. Like, like that, that, that guy cutting you off is such a great example because I don't know his life. I don't know his story. Maybe he's rushing to the hospital. I don't know. But I instinctively assume he hates me or it's, you know, like, like it becomes about me. And I'm so rights-driven that this arrogance piece just bleeds out of my life. And, and so this idea of context is so key because as I start to live out of context, I start to think it's about me, well, that naturally breeds arrogance. Subtly, but it's there. Now, here's the really scary thing. As followers of Christ, we can take that into our relationship with God. Because I take this, this rights-driven mentality and I begin to pursue God with, God, you owe me. I mean, have you ever prayed to God like that? None of us are raising our hand right now. <laughs> no way, right? I mean, unless you hold arrogance as a virtue, which normally people don't, unless you're like really egotistical and then you don't have friends, right? I mean, that guy. Unless you hold arrogance as a virtue, none of us would ever say that. And yet I think if we're going to begin to be honest, there are times where we approach God with a rights-driven mentality. God, here I am struggling with X, Y, Z, and God, why aren't you showing up? God, you owe me. 
I've been going to church for like a month straight now. <laughs> right? And what's terrifying about that is when we go to God in that arrogant mindset, we actually set ourselves up in opposition to him. Because it's not about you and me. It's about him. And God doesn't like it when we approach him that way. It's like if you've had a child or that grandchild who is just the spoiled, rotten brat of a kid, and they expect and demand from you instead of, I mean, they may not fully get this gratitude thing, but they're just like, mine, 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 right? And you're like, ooh, you really want me to get, like, I will give you something, yes, I, you know, like, <laughs> like that feeling, right? Because if you really understand the message of this book, God does owe me something. But I don't want that. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So when I approach God with a rights-driven mentality, whoo, I am asking for it. But the gift of God is eternal life. Thank God he doesn't give me what I deserve. And that's where I need to realize, man, I cannot bring that to him. Because when I go to him in that mindset, I set myself up against him. I love how Peter captures this there on your message notes. He says this, he goes, all of you. So this half of the room, <laughs> no, all of us, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So Peter's advice, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. And because he's good, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. But man, what a terrifying place to find myself if I don't understand this idea of context, that it's not about me. Because when I make it about me, man, I set myself up against him. And that's when I stop experiencing what it is he has for me. And here's the interesting thing. I think even in a narcissistic culture like ours, as a, as a whole, we instinctively know that we are not the center of the universe. Because as we begin to experience our frailty and our mortality, we begin to realize maybe I'm not all that I thought I was. I, I mean, we call it a midlife crisis, right? Because for the first time, you've come to the other side of all of your strength and all the best that you ever were, and suddenly you realize, hey, I, I'm not the man, I'm not the king of the hill, I'm not the woman or whatever it is, and you, you start to spin out of control a little bit. And, and, and it's so common in our culture now, it's become fashionable to have a, a quarter-life crisis <laughs> because the next generation is following the generation in front of them, and they're like, well, why wait till then? Let's just have it now. <laughs> we know somewhere inside, whether we belong to him or not, that instinctively we're not the center. And yet we choose to live so often out of context in that way. But man, that's the first place. That's the first place that, that living life out of context can take us. Here's the other place. It's more personal. It's more private. It's a lot darker. But living life out of context not only leads to arrogance, but it can also lead to this, ashamedness. I looked that up on dictionary.com. Apparently it's a real word. I'm not just playing with the English language. 
Have you ever felt this? If they only knew, whoever they are. In, in your relationships, your friendships, your family, I, I don't know whoever they are, but have you ever felt that? Man, if they only knew what was really going on inside, what I was thinking, if they only knew what I've, where I've been, what I've done, who I was, the struggles, the darkness, if they only knew. And it causes us so often to live at a distance from everybody. Because I, I can say hi, I can be friends with people, but as long as I have this barrier, then I don't have to worry about you knowing. Because part of the reason why we get afraid of real relationships is because in relationships we're revealed. And so it's really easy for me to go through life at, at this kind of a buffer with everyone because as we get closer, you see this, and I don't want you to see this. It's one of the reasons as a church, one of our core values is this idea of authenticity. Because we know that what Christ has done for us, he, he set us free from that. And so the idea is be real with God and let's be real with one another and let's help us get over this. And so here I come in the context of a life group or, or close relationships and friendships that I have and, and the best that I can with God's grace and God's help, I'm going to be real with where I'm at and maybe you can lend me your strength to help and vice versa. But so often we live in that place. And I want to just make sure you're clear. When I, when I talk about a shameness, I, I'm not talking about shame because of what someone has done to you. Because that is a darkness as well. And there are many of us who bear scars because of the ugly choices of another person. And that does play itself into this. But the shameness I'm talking about is even deeper than that. It, it, it's the sense at the core of my being, somewhere deep inside of me, I realize something's wrong, that I am flawed. It's interesting to me, our culture's response to this. You go into any bookstore, Borders, Barnes & Noble, just do this one. Go look at the self-help section. Man, there are a hundred books. And it's interesting, from a spiritual, religious, non-perspective, there are answers to this question, and yet what's interesting to me is the, the question, or the answer to this question, what's wrong with me, usually goes something like this. Nothing's wrong with you. It's just your perception of yourself or everyone around you. So change your perception of yourself or something like that, right? That, that seems to be the answer. The answer is let's not address the issue. Let's just deny there's an issue. And then we just kind of put on the happy face and go through life and play the game. And yet the Christian perspective on this is that the reason we feel guilty is because we are. Because we're a fallen race. The, the image of God in which we were originally created has been smashed beyond self-repair. And at the core of our own understanding of our identity, whether we're in touch with it or just this feelings around it, we know that there's something wrong. And the message of Jesus is this. You are screwed up, and God loves you anyway. And he is in the business of redeeming you and restoring you. And so when we live in context, we understand, God, there's something wrong with me. Thank you. It's not about me anymore. It's about you and what you have for me. It's what the Bible talks about being a new creation, stepping into the new life. 
And yet again, in the Christian journey, we can so often live out of context and live in this area of ashamedness because this is where the enemy really likes to get us. Because the enemy will come to you as you begin to experience what God has for you, and the enemy will say, who do you think you are that God would love you? Who do you think you are that you deserve this? God could never love someone like you. And the enemy begins to sow these half-truths. And what I've begun to understand in my own journey and my own wrestling with this is that when this happens, when the enemy begins to hit me with these things, I now say thank you for reminding me of half the truth that yeah, it's not about me, and yeah, I don't deserve this, and yeah, I don't think that God owes me anything, but thank you for reminding me of a thing called grace and a God who loves me anyway. And I love how the writer of Hebrews captures this there on your note sheet, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, uh, using some of the Old Testament imagery, how, how the nation of Israel would offer sacrifices for the forgiveness of their sins, and, and there would be a high priest who once a year would go before God on behalf of the people and offer the sacrifice for the whole year, and they'd repeat this over and over and over again. And then Jesus comes, and the writer of Hebrews says, look, he has one sacrifice for all time. And then he uses this, the, 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 he says these words, he goes, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest, i.e. Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who is tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. See, Jesus can help me because he gets me. And Jesus can help me because he never gave in like me. He can show me how to begin to have victory in my life. And look at what he says. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. Why? Because of you? No, because of Jesus. Because it's not about you anymore. It's not about you anymore. It's about him and what he's doing for you. So that let us approach the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And yet how many times do I forget this? And because here's what's interesting about arrogance and ashamedness if I begin to live out of context and I begin to embrace arrogance, I set myself up in opposition to God. And if I live out of context and I begin to embrace a shameness, I begin to allow that to push me away from God. And yet what's interesting about arrogance and a shameness is that both of these are making the same mistake, focusing on the wrong person. Because with both of these, I'm focusing on me. But guess what? It's not about me anymore. It's about him. I, I, I want you to catch this idea. Uh, we're going to jump back into John. I know I'm taking us on a detour, but there's a point, so follow me. Jump to the right in your Bibles a few books. Go to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Because when we make it about us, we forget who it is about. We miss the one who it is about. And so Paul writes these words in Colossians 3, verse 1. He says, since then, you have been raised with Christ. 
That idea that we've entered into a new life. We've died to the old life. Through what Christ has given us, we've entered into a new life. He goes, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Hey, it's not about your old life anymore. There's something new and radical he's given you. He says, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Now look at this. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Okay, who's it about? It's about Jesus. And it's about the new life he's giving us. And we're longing for that day when he finally shows up and makes all things new. When he appears, because it's about him. It, it would be like this. Imagine you're at a, an award show. Like, like we're at the Oscars or the Academy Awards, okay? And, and, and there was just this movie that everyone knew was the movie. Like, like it swept all the Oscars. It got it. And so now it's time for the greatest award of the night. It's a time for uh, the best picture, best thing. And, and so they announced the winner. No one, like the other people didn't even show up because they knew they weren't going to win. Like this, this, it was, we just knew it was this guy. And so this guy shows up. He, he's the director. He's the producer. He's the actor. Like he made it all happen. He gets up on stage. And he doesn't thank anybody, but he says, hey, I'd like to invite someone up here with me. And he just points to the farthest, darkest corner of the auditorium, and he calls out this girl's name that no one has ever heard. And he's like, hey, come up here with me. And you just hear this, woohoo, in the back of the auditorium. And, and, and you, it, it takes a while for this girl to get up here, and they start the music, and the guy's like, no, uh-uh. You don't, you don't start the music and shut me off. Like, you know how they do that with the famous people. Like, he's like, no, this is my time, kind of a thing. And so this girl comes running up, and she is so excited. She is so happy. She makes Cuba Gooding Jr. look tame in comparison to the joy she's experiencing up on the stage. And people are baffled, and everyone's looking around like, who is this girl? And, and, and so finally, someone just yells from the crowd, who are you? And she's like, oh, I, I was the girl that helped the girl who cleaned the, the, the horse trailer for the horse that was in the movie. And everyone's like, well, why are you up there? And then the guy who, whose award it is, he just walks over and he puts his arm around her and almost like with a rebuke, he goes, because I called her up here. See, that's what it is. When Jesus shows up, it's not about us. It's his award. It's his fame. It's his glory. But he's going to call us up to be with him. Now, I don't know about you, but I think I'm going to feel really stupid in that moment if I've lived this life thinking it's about me. And all of a sudden, like, boom, award, light, you know, everything. And Jesus is just like, hey, here it is. It's about me. And I was like, oh. You know, like, like it's like in the, the Academy Awards when that guy stands up thinking he's going to get it and starts walking and, real, oh, it wasn't me. Yeah, because it's about him. It's about him. And yet he's going to share that with us because it's for us. If you read in John 17, he talks about the glory the Father has given him, and he talks about how he's going to share that glory with us, but not because of us, because of him. And so we need to understand this idea because living life in context means asking this question. If you could ask any question for the rest of your life, every day that you live, this might be one of those questions that you'd want to ask. God, what do you want from me with this life you have given me? Because that's what it means to begin to start living life in context. And that's the beauty of what we see with John here back in John chapter 3. So if your, your finger was in the Bible or you had a ribbon or a friend, go back to John 3. 
Because what we see in John's life is this incredible, this incredible model of a life lived in context, and we see what that life leads to. And so go back with me to verse 27. John's disciples have just come to him, and they're griping, and they're complaining, and, and Jesus is taking away all the show. It would be like, like we were here, and something like Jesus showed up on the patio right before service, and he's like, hey, like, and he just starts teaching out there because he likes the mount kind of thing. That's how he t- likes to do it. So he's out there teaching, and then JD and I are like, where are all the people? Like, we prepared worship and sermon, and like, this is terrible. Like, like that's how ridiculous it is. They've just missed the point. <laughs> See, living life in context leads to this, the first thing, freedom. Verse 27, to this John replied, A man can receive only what is given him from heaven, i.e., I have nothing more than what he offers me, and I can only do what he's called me to do. And so what he gives me is what my life is all about. He goes, you yourselves can testify that I said I'm not the Christ, but I'm sent ahead of him. See, I love this because here's John, and he's not caught up in the silly games they were playing. Because they were playing the game of who's more popular, who's got the power, who are the people following. And John's like, I don't care. Because I am not about that. I'm about him. And he's set free from having to be driven by the opinions of other people. And how many times do we live our whole life because of what that one person thinks or says? And yet life in context is a life of freedom because it's not about me, therefore it's not about them, it's about him. And and I'm not talking about a a cavalier disregard of other people. That's like the hermit who lives in the cave. (laughs) That's not freedom, that's avoidance. This kind of freedom that I'm talking about is the freedom that enables you to engage, that enables you to connect, that enables you to go into the fray and not be consumed with what they think because it's not about you anymore. And here's John living in that freedom. Here's John experiencing that freedom. It's the kind of freedom that enables you to live amongst a family that doesn't get this Jesus thing in your life. That maybe you become the family joke or the last one invited or whatever but it's the kind of freedom that says, you know what, Jesus, what do you want from me with my family? Because that's what I'm going to live for now. And if mom, dad, brother, sister, husband, wife don't get it, God, I just want what you want from me. So help me to love them, but not be consumed by their opinion of me. It's the kind of freedom that lets you live in the workplace and you have that boss, that fellow employee or that employer that like they, they want you to do something you know isn't right or they're pushing you to like just give up, whatever. Like they're just trying to like tell you, don't be this or be this or do that. And you know that that's not what it is. And you say, God, all I want is what you want from me. And so I'm not going to let their opinion of me or their control over me determine who I am anymore. And I'm not going to be a jerk for you in the office because that's not what it's about. I'm just going to seek to be who you called me to be. And if I lose my job over that, 
that's on you. Because <laughs> it's about you. It's not about me. So here we go. What else do you got for me? Because think about it. What do you think is better for those people in the long run? A person who's seeking what God wants, which is ultimately the best. Or a person that cowers and gives in. It's the freedom that enables you to share Christ as simply as he's calling you to do it. Well, God, what do they think about me? What if they do this and what if that? And God's like, when, when has it ever been about you? It's about me. So they laugh, so they make fun of. It's me they're rejecting, not you. Just be who I've called you to be. There's a freedom that comes with that. It, it's the freedom Paul's writing about here on your message notes, Galatians 1.10. Paul was not, Paul helped write most of the New Testament, one of the early church starters. <laughs> Paul was not liked a lot by his fellow countrymen and even by some of the, the churches sometimes. And, and I love what Paul says here. It, it's a very freeing verse. He says, am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. See, this freedom means that you live for the approval of one. And what he thinks, what he says, that's what it's all about now. And so God, if people don't like me because of you, okay, it's not about me. And I'm going to experience the freedom you have for me in living that. Now, that's not easy. That takes a lot, but God's with you in the middle of it, and that's the freedom he wants to give you as you begin to live life in context. But that's not the only thing that living life in context leads to. Living life in context also leads to this, joy. Joy is a hard thing to grasp. Have you, have you figured that out yet? Have you ever chased after joy only to find that it's really elusive? (laughs) That's because joy is not something that can be grasped by chasing after it. Joy is the byproduct of chasing after something else. It's the byproduct of chasing after the life God's calling you to live. And we see this in John. Verse 29, he says, The bride belongs to the bridegroom. (laughs) This weird analogy that he's using. He says, the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. Uh, Culturally, the way it would work in that day is the the party would get started at the groom's house, and then his best man would head over to the bride's house to make sure that the family and everyone was ready. Then the entourage would come, they'd pick her up, then they'd all go back together to the groom's house, and the party and the wedding would start. And so John's using this analogy. He's like, look, the the best man, the friend of the groom, heads on over, and he's making sure everything's ready. And so he's just kind of hanging out there waiting. And then when he hears the groom coming, he's like, oh, this is it. I don't know if you've ever had that privilege of standing with someone in a wedding, like like you're the guy with the guy or the girl with your your, your best girlfriend. Um, And and in that moment, like you just see this, this couple coming together, and you're just filled with such joy for them. Some of us, it's envy, but, you know, a lot of times, like, like, just that joy because of what's going on. This is what John's talking about. And look at what he says at the end of verse 29. That joy is mine. And it's now complete. He must become greater 
I must become less because it's not about me. And John was experiencing the joy of living the life he was called to live. It's the joy you experience when you see that person that you have been praying for suddenly get it, and God gets a hold of them, and they come to Jesus. And man, you've been praying over that person, and you're saying, God, whatever it takes, break them, break me. Whatever it takes, and suddenly it happens, and it's the joy you experience in that moment. It's the joy you experience, maybe you're serving with the kids here at church, and you see a kid whose world is full of darkness and pain, suddenly understand that God loves them. That's your joy. It's the joy you experience when you're living out the life God has called you to live. And somewhere along the way, you get to see what he's doing in and through your life. That's your joy. It's the experience of a life that's living in context. It's the experience of a life that's saying, God, what do you want from me? And until we understand our context, we'll never experience that kind of freedom and that joy that he wants to give us. And it's so important, you guys, that we get this. Not simply for our own sake, not simply for our own journey, but it matters that we get this for the sake of the people in this world around whom we live out our context. Because as they see what's going on in us, it will stir something for, for them and in them. Because here at the, the end of this section in chapter 3, um, John the Apostle begins to add his own commentary now to what, the, what John the Baptist said. I know the quotations continue, um, but if Mike can unquote Jesus, I can unquote John the Baptist. <laughs> um, in your footnotes, it'll even give you that clue that this is probably now John the, the Apostle writer's commentary coming in talking about what John the Baptist was saying. And he, he says these words. He says in verse 31, he says, The one who comes from above is above all, i.e. Jesus. And the one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. So John was just doing what he was doing, but Jesus is greater. He goes, He, Jesus, testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. He's echoing those words back in John chapter 1 where he said, look, the light has come into the world, but the darkness didn't understand it. Like there will be a lot of people that just miss it. They don't get it. They don't understand who Jesus is. He goes, but for those that do, verse 33, the man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. It's that idea. When you came to Jesus, like a switch was turned on, and suddenly you're like, oh, this is what it's about. He goes, for the one whom God has sent, Jesus, speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. That it's about him and what he's doing and what he's given us, and he's put his Spirit within us. So he says, the Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. See why we need to get this right? Because it's not about us. It's about him and what he's doing for us and through us. And then when we make it about us, we turn people away from the one whom it is about. And what this means is that there will be people in this world who will not get it, will not see Jesus until they see it in your life. 
that there is a world that's dying to see people living in freedom and in joy. And they will never see that until they see you living out the context God has called you to live. I imagine that there are some of you that are here tonight because you saw that in someone else's life. You saw someone going through the same circumstances, the same situation, the same economy, yet there's this freedom and joy thing, and it doesn't make sense because they're really not that great of a person, and you're confused, and you just kind of asked them, and they didn't make it about them, and maybe awkwardly pointed you to Jesus, and you're like, well, if this Jesus can do for them, him, you know, like, and maybe that's why you're here today, because you want to understand this. This is why we have to get it right. This is why it matters. When we live out our context and experience what God has for us, the freedom and the joy he wants to give us, we shine in a dark world where we reflect him to the people around us. The worship team is going to come up right now. And as we go into this time... um, Worship team is going to sing a song for us. And you may know it, you may not, but regardless, I would just invite you to help let this song shape your prayer, shape your response to God right now in this moment. And and as we go into this time, I want to ask you a question. A question to begin to wrestle with these ideas. And here's the question. Where do you find yourself tonight? as you come to this place and you think about this idea of context, where do you find yourself? Do you find that if you look at your life that maybe it's out of context because if you're going to be honest with what's going on, maybe there's some arrogance or a shameness that's kind of consuming you. Let me just tell you, that's a sign that you got to do some business with God. And maybe you're finding that, hey, this freedom and joy that we're looking at, that we see in John's life, you're starting to experience. And so let me just tell you, run in that. Even when it gets difficult and it gets hard, because John loses his life for Jesus' sake. But ultimately, he finds life. So where do you find yourself tonight? Let's pray. Father, tonight in this place, We just want to come before you because it's about you. And God, would you forgive us for the times that we make it about us, for the times that we we chase after other things or we make it not about you. Jesus, you said in Matthew, you, you said... that if we lose ourselves for your sake, that we'll find ourselves. So here tonight, we just want to come before you and acknowledge that it's all about you. It's all about you. And we want to accept what it is then that you have for us.